How do companies create a culture and core values that employees actually live out? The team at The Receptionist, a Denver-based software company, sets out to answer that very question. Welcome to The Fabric. Here's your host, Michael Ashford. Andrew Bartlow joins me in this episode to give his perspective from a 25-plus year career as an HR executive and consultant. Andrew has lived and worked through market shifts and economic booms and busts, and he's noticed some culture, employee, and management challenges that high-growth companies tend to face when market forces start to apply new and perhaps uncomfortable pressures on their businesses. As you'll hear, while Andrew and I don't agree on everything, conversations about how leadership decisions affect employees are necessary to making sure companies continue to grow and employees continue to thrive. Here's my conversation with Andrew. I know that you have been in the HR industry for 25 plus years. I know this is a career that you chose. You didn't just fall into HR as you you have said so many times on other podcasts that I've heard you on uh, in my own research. I'm curious, though, in all those years, in in wanting to get into HR, let's start here. What's the biggest culture shift or change in company culture that you have experienced and seen over the last, gosh, quarter quarter of a century? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, it's been a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, I guess I guess I'm old. We have the video, so you can see <laughs> the uh, the white wings above my ears here. Um, there have been a number of examples. I've worked at a lot of different places. Um, there's usually a significant culture change when one of two or three things happen. And I could pluck any, any example you like out of this. What one is a change in the macro environment. We're going through right that right now where the startups are well-funded, well-capitalized, growing like crazy. And then all of a sudden, you know, you move into cost containment and, and cash preservation mode and their layoffs that leads to massive culture shifts. And I could share a couple examples of that, but I think we're, you know, many of us are living that right now. And boy, I experienced that during the, uh, the dot-com boom and bust. I was head of HR in 2000, 2001 during the dot-com uh, takeoff and crash. Um, you also see a massive culture shift when there's a leadership change. Uh, I've been through a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And when the key decision maker, when the CEO or when the the owners change, the board, the primary investors, uh, that usually leads to a directional shift and a recalibration. I do a lot of work with a private equity company that uh, you know, one of their primary value creation plans, it's based on growth, but you're constantly acquiring uh, businesses to, to gain scale. And so how do you integrate those organizations? Um, and likewise with leadership change, where you have a, a new senior leader brought in from the outside, maybe without um, an ownership change. So, you know, new new decision makers, new environment, the culture changes pretty, pretty dramatically. And uh, where I've seen organizations be successful through that is where they own it and they name it and they're willing to say, here's what's different. And where I've seen it be a real struggle is where you use the words best of both worlds or keep what worked and add, it never works that way. It makes for a really, um, you know, re- really uh, funny tasting soup as you keep <laughs> adding more elements and, and don't make a choice to say, hey, here's who we're going to be and we're going to own the good and the bad with that. 
that scenario that you outlined earlier, companies are starting to get a little, you know, protective of their cash. Perhaps the investment dollars aren't flowing as freely as they were several years ago. We've been pretty vocal here, and our CEO, Andy Alsup, has been pretty vocal here on this show about the situation that you just just described. We go into this um, kind of protective mode, and humans and their jobs and their livelihoods are on the chopping block. And we see CEO pay going up while average worker compensation going down or even layoffs happening when companies are posting profits. Andrew, what does that do to a company's culture? Uh, We can guess, but you've seen it. What does that do to a company's culture? Sure. Um, Yeah, this information age where there are a lot of echo chambers that will tell you that whatever your darkest suspicions are, are true, um, leads to a lot of divisiveness, you know, leads to, you know, people finding the data that supports whatever their their beliefs are that, you know, sadly, we humans tend, tend to assume the worst. Um, and, and when you say, see layoffs happening in an organization, and when you see that company being profitable or bonuses being paid to the remaining leaders, you don't feel good about it. You, you just don't when, when your ability to pay your mortgage uh, is impacted. And, and I'm not saying that you should, um, but big picture view if a business doesn't make some of those tough decisions, they may not be in business anymore. And, and that's been a really difficult message for organizations to communicate effectively. There's been, been a lot of stumbling and bumbling, unfortunately, with, with sharing, hey, we've got to make a, a tough decision and here's how we're moving forward. And, and not everybody will like the answer. And so more directly to your question, what does that do to the culture? It creates divisiveness, it creates suspicion, it creates a haves and have nots. And, you know, it's really up to the leaders that remain at that organization to navigate through it. And, and I'd suggest doing that through kind, direct, consistent communication, both to the people departing as well as to your customers and then to your remaining team. That message that you just talked about right there. What has precipitated some of these examples that we've seen where employees are fired from a 15 minute Zoom call um, or 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 even, you know, I'll challenge you a little bit on on something you just said there, Andrew, in that it's it's really hard to say, okay, you know, that company might not be in business. It's really hard for me personally and really hard for a lot of people listening probably to say, that company just posted millions of dollars worth of profit. You're telling me they have to lay off a thousand people in order to remain viable and not be around as a company. Mm. There's a, it doesn't add up kind of thought that goes through my head. So that's two part question there. (laughs) I, I asked first about the, the unempathetic approach to some of this that we're seeing out there. Um, what went wrong? Like what's what what are we dealing with here where people think that that's an acceptable way to drastically alter someone's life like that? Yeah. Well, I'll I'll take the two pieces in in two parts. Yeah. <laughs> so the de- delivering difficult news in an awkward way. 
usually, you know, most leaders don't have bad intentions. Most leaders don't want to hurt people's feelings or do something that would, you know, um, hurt their own reputation. So I, I ascribe some of these poor, most of these poor practices to good intentions, terrible execution, not fully thinking through the implications of how the, the jury of public opinion and the experience of the people directly affected um, by those actions will be taken. Um, You know, sometimes you have no HR people in place at these organizations where, you know, CEOs are, are messaging in awkward ways. Sometimes you have HR people that are unable to effectively influence their CEO founders. There are several examples of that. It's not always the HR leader's fault. So good intentions, difficult mechanics, the logistics are not easy. Um, I disagree uh, with people that say that you can only uh, lay someone off in a one-on-one person-to-person conversation. Ten years ago, we shut down a 7,000-person company. We had 20 HR people that were tasked with doing that, and we lost our own jobs. You had to have some group notifications. You just had to. And we didn't have Zoom. We didn't have video uh, as as easily accessible back then. Right. So the, as, as much as we would like to have one-on-one human conversations with people, sometimes you, you do need to batch some very difficult messages. Now, were all of those messages well communicated? Of course not. Was that all logistically thought through? No. So put a bow on that first part. The the lack of empathy, I I think is is largely ascribed to lack of experience, lack of awareness, rather than poor intentions. Um, And does that have a lasting impact on the person? Well, the, the impact of losing your job will but the experience of having been notified of a layoff via Zoom or via email or via live one-on-one conversation, you're still looking for a job to go replace your job. Right. Um, so the, the impact is hopefully not lasting in terms of that awkward communication. I don't mean to minimize it, but I'd, I'd say you know, really the tough decision is – is is the toughest part, right? Losing your job is the toughest part, and hopefully there is a, a generous severance package to uh, to help people transition to the next thing. All right, so that that's one piece. That's do part we wanna, one. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to talk any any more about that one before we jump on? Yeah, to the, let's let's the let's move on because I do want right. to get to some more positive stuff as well. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, for better or worse, I've seen a lot of these cycles. I yeah. mean, you referred to the twenty five years and. You know, I was uh, head of HR at a small company during the dot-com boom and bust. I was in a senior leadership role during the financial services crisis. Um, I, w- I was part of the mortgage meltdown. Um, I've been at a company that went through an SEC investigation whose stock went from 90-something to 13 and, you know, got taken over by, uh, by uh, unfriendly private equity shareholders. Um, I, I've seen a lot. Uh, over the years. Um, so the viability, I, I agree. Like, let, let's use what's in the news right now as an example. Meta, Facebook's parent company, has mm-hmm. been laying off a lot of people. Disney just announced today that it's uh, laying right. off thousands more. Right. Those companies will make a profit. Yes. The question for the leaders of those companies is, 
what are we in business to do? What is our mission? What is our vision? What is our purpose? Yes, we want to delight our customers. Yes, we want to connect people, uh, whether you're Disney or Facebook Meta. Um, if you are a public company that is owned by your shareholders, your responsibility is to create a return on the investment that they've put in you. And to do that in a legal way, more and more social responsibility is part of that. Um, but I would suggest, even though I'm a lifelong, career-long HR leader, your responsibility is not to protect jobs. Your responsibility is to keep delivering your service as best you can and serve the business. And, and that means serving your shareholders, who are often uh, pension funds of teachers unions, um, pension funds of uh, states and, and public employers. Um, if you're not making the return on the investment, those investors will go somewhere else where they are. And, and so you know, protecting the jobs, I think, is something that a business leader needs to look at in terms of effect on reputation and ability to deliver. But I'd suggest, sadly, it's not a primary goal to protect jobs at most, or, at most publicly traded organizations. Which is exactly why uh, we here at The Receptionist and here on this show talk about um, employee supremacy rather than shareholder supremacy. This belief mm -hmm. that if you build trusting teams, if you invest in your employees and the community around you, you actually grow more in the long term and pay off shareholders, whoever they may be, at a greater rate if you're taking care of people first and foremost. We've got a divide there, I guess, yeah. in, in your yeah. answer and what we are, are striving for here at The Receptionist. And you mentioned something. There has never been a, a greater awareness that this stuff happens because of the environment and the culture and the access to tools and information that we have. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I'll be very honest, Andrew, that, that answer was unsatisfying and I think unsatisfying yeah. for a lot of people, right? I, I agree. And this could be a really good topic for us to have a, um, you know, a, a constructive debate yeah. about, um, it, during the 12 year bull market run and easy access to cheap capital, there has been a war for talent and employee attraction and retention has been the, the dominant um, driver in the labor market. And so employers are looking for any way that they can appeal to workers to, you know, pick them over alternatives and to stay. Mm -hmm. As that macro environment shifts and things get tighter and profitability gets harder and you know loans are more expensive, that war for talent, if it changes, is likely to shift more towards um, profitability and financial uh, responsibility, potentially at the expense of appealing to the workers. And I, I'm suggesting that there was always an element of both and that the, the the meter shifts based on the macro environment. And I don't think we're there yet. Unemployment is still very low. Right. Um, but I think it's likely that we'll see a cycle, that it, that it won't always be employee supremacy with the employers 
working to put employees first. I think we'll need, this is something I talk a lot about. So as you've listened to me appear on other shows, you've probably hear me, you know, talk about this, that there needs to be a much more direct link towards what employers do for their workers and the financial outcomes. I think that would benefit everybody. Mm -hmm. If you have a field of dreams approach, if you build it, they will come. If you do have more programs, if you do more stuff to appeal more to workers with kind of a bottomless budget or limitless resources, and that's disconnected from the bottom line impact, once that's pressure tested, it goes away. And so I think we've used shorthand too much to support workers. We need to draw stronger causal linkage towards what we're doing for workers and the impact on the organization. That these, just to, so I'm understanding you correctly, that these these things that we're doing to gain employee trust, to create well-performing teams that feel secure in their jobs, that that creates better, more uh, more sustainable, uh, more profitable companies. Because obviously, I mean, like I totally agree with what you mentioned earlier. The point of business is to make money. <laughs> yep. Is, yep. is am I characterizing kind of what you were getting at right there in a in an yeah, appropriate I, I, way? I, th- I think that's fair. It's there, there's definitely a rational linkage between treat people right and they'll 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 trust you and they'll want to work for you. But when you start applying dollars and headcount and hours to that, yeah, there, there's a uh, there's a point of diminishing returns. There's limitless investment without necessarily more return. And so where do you, where do you find the axes crossing where it makes sense for the business to do one more thing, or maybe it doesn't make sense for the business to do one more thing. Yeah. So, so I'm saying it can't be based purely on belief. It's got to be based on uh, thoughtful decision-making if you're undertaking any sort of major employee program. What's the what's the phrase we all heard in uh, like elementary or, or high school math? Show your work, right? <laughs> Make mm-hmm. sure we we see the work, right? Yeah. Um, I wanna I wanna talk to you about some some high growth. Uh, you you've worked with a lot of high growth uh, companies, yeah. or, or uh, and you define growth as well. I'll let you describe it. How do you define a high growth company? Yeah, I I describe fifty um, percent uh, headcount growth year over year. Uh, as being high growth. And so earlier you were talking about perhaps a lack of awareness from leaders to understand how their decisions or how the way they relay information, how that will be uh, perceived, how it will be received by their employees. I'm wondering this this point, in a lot of those high growth organizations, you often see, of course, top performers moving into management roles. Yeah. However, there's something and a lot has been discussed and written about that, Andrew. But there's also something that I'm curious about if you've seen, which is the the manager who's already in uh, a manager or a director role where they're overseeing a group of people, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But they're in the weeds They're They're also in the day to day. And then all of a sudden in this high growth environment, they go to, I've got to be much more high level strategic. I've got to pull myself out of the day to day. What have you seen that can help someone in that type of role where they are a daily contributor and a manager move into more of that strategic high level operational 
tier of management. Have you seen yeah. much given much attention paid there? Not as much as probably should be. Um, you know, how do you, the question is, how do you elevate? How do you move from being a player to a player coach to a coach, maybe to a leader of leaders um, or leader of managers? You know, so much of that is, um, is awareness that that's what's needed. That's ha- that, that type of behavior and, and contribution delivers your best and highest contribution to the organization and your team. Um, Patrick Lencioni, author of Five Dysfunctions of a Team, has a, has a great two-minute video on team number one, uh, where you talk about setting the organization as a whole, that that executive team is your number one uh, focus versus your functional group or your department. Because if you don't work cohesively with your executive team, your functional groups will fight, I think his words are, bloody and unwinnable wars with each other. <laughs> so you've got to get aligned on what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And, and heck, I'd suggest maybe to simplify it massively, as a leader or manager of others, perhaps the most important thing you can do is decide what your team will work on. Decide what your team will work on give some clarity over priorities. If you're just passing down all the many things that your organization wants to do without, you know, thinking through and metering and filtering and, and making it really clear who will do what, then you're not helping them. You're just increasing the pressure. Um, So your role as a leader, strong opportunity to build more awareness is around prioritizing and aligning your team. One of the things I've heard you say quite often is that there are no best practices, that best practices don't exist when it comes to HR and, and these types of, of decisions yeah. that we've been discussing up to this point. So as we begin to wrap things up here, Andrew, help me out. How does a manager, perhaps a new manager in a high growth state or a high growth company begin to make sense of their world and while there may not be best practices because every situation's different, <laughs> what should they be thinking about as they they consider their role and their place in in the growth of a company? Yeah, um, it it really is kind of a fun tagline. There's no such thing as a best practice. I I think when you actually dig into it, it's a little bit more nuanced, and and that is that there's some things that are tried and true and will generally work or directionally correct. But if you apply them blindly, then you have massive risk. And so to answer your question, what a leader or manager should do when they're trying to figure out how to support their team is to think critically. You know, you, you hear a lot from relatively inexperienced people at, at high growth organizations about first principles thinking. What are we trying to accomplish? How do we go about doing it? Even if you're in a large established organization, you can identify what are the practices that I'm aware of, what do others do in this type of situation, but then have a really important second step. And that is asking yourself, well, how could this work here? How might this be relevant in my organization? Um, And and sometimes it's a fit, many times it's not. Maybe a uh, small tweak will make it work much better in your organization. I, I like to use the example of you know coming in on a Monday and my former CEO had been to an offsite with 
with Tony Shea uh, from Zappos, and he wanted to bring in holacracy to our organization. And I used a lot of political capital um, with him to t- try to talk him out of it. Just about got me fired. I'm glad it didn't. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, you know, holacracy is great when you have uh, thousands of people under one roof doing a highly measurable call center job in Las Vegas. Holacracy, which which means that you don't really have managers in your organization, is much harder when you are in a subjectively measured role or not measured very well at all in broadly distributed sense with a bunch of knowledge workers. Um, it's different. So you, you probably need more people guiding your team. So is holacracy good or bad? It depends. Could you use that as a practice in another call center and it might work? Yeah, maybe much more likely than in a broadly distributed disparate team. Um, so to put a bow on it, apologies for the long answer. Oh, no, you're fine. Uh, apply that really simple but critical second step, and that is the critical thinking of how would this work at my organization? Don't just blindly use somebody else's playbook. I like that. Very good. Well, Andrew, uh, this is the fabric, and fabric actually stands for our core values here at The Receptionist, which are fun, authentic, bold, respectful, innovative, and collaborative. And I ask all of my guests as the final question, which one of those resonates with you or which one do you feel is is most uh, to the work that you do is most um, important, perhaps, to the work that you do in, in helping companies kind of solve their HR challenges? I, I really appreciate that. Um I'd say bold, maybe to no surprise. Um, I, I think being willing to take a stand, um, authentic also appeals to me, but being willing to take a stand on what works for you, on how things work, show your work, explain your thinking. Um, and I think especially in the HR world, we, we do ourselves and our organizations and the people that work there a much greater service if we were able to more clearly describe why we are pitching for a certain idea or pushing back on something else. It's not always about compliance. It's not just about making people happy. It's about the impact on the organization as a whole. And so be bold, be clear, be authentic along the way. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Fabric. Our show is hosted by me, Michael Ashford, Director of Marketing here at The Receptionist and produced by our creative manager, James Jordan. If you want to see a video version of the show, jump over to thereceptionist.com slash fabric, where you can watch episodes of all of the content that we've put out on this podcast. You can see our bright, smiling faces, and you can see what our studio looks like as well. If you'd like to give the Receptionist for iPad Visitor Management System a try in your office, jump over to thereceptionist.com slash free trial and give us a test drive for 14 days with no credit card required. See what you think. Until next time, take care.